forever. Dog. It just seems like a dream. It just seems like, oh, yes, I'd like to be in movies when I grow up. It just felt like, you know, a very unoriginal child's dream. Welcome to Household Faces, the podcast where a character actor interviews other character actors. I'm your host, John Ross Bowie. You might know me from Speechless, The Big Bang Theory, or that one scene in What the Bleep Do We Know, where I dance with Marley Matlin. Our guest this episode is Julianne Nicholson. Now, you might know Julianne Nicholson from Mayor of Easttown, for which she just received an Emmy nomination, or you might know her from The Outsider or Black Mass or Law & Order CI. Maybe she was your incredibly polite and efficient waiter at a restaurant in New York in the 90s. We talk about all of those things. We talk about dialects, of course, Mayor of Easttown, and we talk about what it takes to be a really, really good TV parent. Please welcome... Julianne Nicholson. Julianne, thanks for uh, being on the podcast. And, um, you know, first things first, obviously, congratulations on the Emmy nomination. Um, it's, uh, if you ask me, it's long overdue. But I was watching, I did sort of a Julianne Nicholson festival over the past week. Uh, dark around, days. Uh, no, it was great. It was great. <laughs> Although it's a lot of dark material now that you mention it. Um, uh, but it's um, there is this interesting tendency and I'm, I'm never going to put you in a box, but there is this tendency where you tend to you tend to play these stoic, sturdy, working class people who just don't allow themselves a lot of joy. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm looking like, I'm looking kind of broad term here. I'm looking at Mayor of Easttown. Yes, obviously. But, uh, you see a little bit of that in I, Tanya. you see a little bit of that in Black Mass. You see a little bit of that in August Osage County, um, maybe more middle-class there, but how did Julianne grow up? Um, yeah, I'm getting I, you on the couch immediately. We're yeah. Doing this. Whoa. I had, uh, you know, a, ha a happy growing up though, not uncomplicated with, um, as life <laughs> tends to be. You're from Massachusetts. Uh, I'm from outside of Boston, uh, Medford, Mass. Not far from your wife. My um, wife is from Swampscott. <laughs> you guys can do the accent on your own time. It's fine. Um, yes, yes, I know. But it's hard to talk about it and not immediately drop into that. But I grew up outside of Boston from a, um, with a large extended family, Irish Catholic. My dad's the oldest of seven. My mom's the oldest of 10. What? And, yes. And I was the oldest of, I think, like 35 grandkids. So... But we, my sister Wait, and I first. are you serious with that? Yes. With that I'm not exaggerating. Kids? Yes. That's a, not an exaggeration. That's a hard number. Huh. Um, which was kind of, which was amazing. And a lot of love around. Um, though my parents divorced when I was younger. And I, I, my mom, I lived with my mom in Western Mass for, uh, from when I was six to 11. And then my, back with my dad from 11 to 18. So it wasn't uncomplicated. But I don't know why I have like such deep wells of wells of grief to to go to because it wasn't all, it wasn't all that bad, you know. I don't know. Well, it's almost is as that if, what you're trying to get at? No, I'm I'm just curious as like you know because um, I never I never doubt your your working class credentials. You know, there's sometimes you will see uh, someone you know like you know, Gwyneth Paltrow will play put upon and you're like, yeah, your dad directed St. Elsewhere. I'm not buying it. <laughs> um, true. And I, 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 I don't get that from, from your character. So I was wondering about that level of uh, not necessarily grief, but sort of a, a, a stoic, um, 
authenticity. I think there's definitely something to that part of the world and growing up in uh in something that I really responded to in Mare that I could recognize in like Medford is to Boston what Delco is to Philly type oh, of thing. Okay. Like it's sort of it's not the city, it's not the heartbeat, but it's also I think something about that weather. I think there's a real thing to the toughness of character coming from just practicals, from having mm -hmm. to like scrape the ice off your car window to just live in like the gray and wet of November. I think it does something to 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 people. A beautiful thing, actually. A beautiful thing. Interesting. Elaborate. What do you mean? Just um, just an authenticity, uh, a humor to deal with it, a loyalty. Uh importance of family. People don't move. I got a letter from a girlfriend of mine who I had written to her because her stepfather passed away, who I remember like swimming in her, her doughboy pool, you know, in her yard from when I was like six to 16. And she, she lives on the same street that I've been writing to her mother to for 45 years or whatever it is. And she said, I still see, you know, this person, this person, this person, this person. I was like, Oh, that's beautiful. I think there's a real tendency for people to stay. It's interesting. Your um, your your R's are um, sort gone, of, uh, vanishing. The more you talk <laughs> yes. about, um, that's what I mean. It's not on purpose. I, I'm sure it isn't on purpose. I'm sure it just naturally happens. Um, as long as we're talking about your dialect, I have the inevitable question about Mare uh, has to come up. You guys had an onset dialect coach. I'm I'm to understand pretty much all the time. All the time. A scene didn't, wasn't filmed without her being there. There's not a ton of prior media that you can go to for that outside of Philly accent. You know, they, there's never been a Goodwill hunting set in, in like Darby or Yardley no, or, or any of those No, I think places. that's what Mare is. That's yeah. that thing, right? It's our introduction too. Yeah. And uh, how did you... Are you you're you're I think you're you're generally speaking good with accents and uh, your husband who we're going to talk about. He's very good with with dialects. Are you uh, is it all in the ear with you or are you are you very technical with it? Are you like, OK, this is where the, the center of gravity is in my mouth. How do you approach that stuff? For me, it's more the ear okay. than location in the mouth. Um and we had this woman, Suzanne Selby, who was amazing. And she did this great thing, which was she recorded many different versions of the accent. Because as we all know, you know, you have the idea of what that accent is, but it sounds different on everyone in, in every house. So I listened to a bunch of them and I, because I wasn't, you know, I'm not in a ton of the show, especially in the first few episodes. And so I didn't want to be coming in hard with this accent that I was going to be like working one week and then home for two weeks and then coming back in and doing it again. So part of it was fear. And part of it was just like, I, I feel like in, in telling that story in that place to have different versions, more and less extreme versions of that accent to me feels more authentic. And so that felt like a good way, a good way in. I just, the people I know who grew up outside of, uh, or in like the outer boroughs of New York, they don't actually sound like New York cops from the fifties. Right. You know, they're, they're, they, these accents have been diluted over the years a little bit, Yeah, but it was still so, uh, so strong. I, I want to continue our origin story here. So you grow up in, uh, in Medford, you spend some time in Western Mass and you end up in New York city, you go to Hunter, mm -hmm. um, 
And you majored in something called general studies, which I got to tell you, sounds like a fancy way of saying undeclared. What was yeah, general that studies? Might, that might have been undeclared. That might have been, that may have just been where we left it. A sort of leaning towards like actually anthropology and languages. Really? But I on, yes, but I only, I did that. I went to Hunter for, I think, two and a half years and I would work in restaurants at night and then go to Hunter in the day. And I think it was because I was too afraid to sort of start acting yet, but I needed to do something more than just waitressing. Cause I was feeling like, okay, this isn't, this isn't working just doing this. And so it felt like just taking care of myself and, and moving forward without a real vision. Were you a good waiter? Yes. Oh, you were. That's I was nice. a really good waiter. Were you? That's, yes. that's that You don't hear that a lot of the time. You hear a lot of people like, I sucked. That's the reason no. I started acting, because I was just so bad at waiting tables. But I bet you were like. I was really like, good. You, I want to give people the service that I would like to have myself when I sit down at a table. Thank you for asking, John. I don't know that anyone has ever asked me that before. <laughs> I can see you coming over and just like knowing the specials, like the back of your hand. Yes. I'm going to give you the meal you want in a happy way. <laughs> What was it about acting that made you scared to admit you wanted to do it? Oh, gosh. Well, so, you know, it just seems like a dream. It just seems like, oh, yes, I'd like to be in movies when I grow up. It just felt like, you know, a very unoriginal child's dream. And I was and then I was a waiter and I was like, oh, great. So now I'm a waiter and an actor. Oh, for fuck's sake. Like, I don't want to be that cliche. <laughs> but then it's like at a certain point, you have to just either jump in and do it. Make the commitment. I said when I started, I, I was 24 and I was like, OK. I have to do this now. I found a teacher that also it suddenly made sense to me how she approached acting and, and getting into a character. And Who was that? Her name is Sheila Gray in New York. Oh, I know that name. Yeah. Yeah. She was wonderful. And so this was sort of in mid 90s. And uh, I just told myself I'm going to commit myself to this for five years. And at the end of five years, I'll sort of evaluate and I can either, you know, quit or it will be working at that point, or I'll have had enough, or the, I can keep, anyway, at five years, I can decide if this something's, if this is something worth pursuing or, or moving on to my anthropology, <laughs> moving back it, to my undeclared. Is this, was, is this concurrent with uh, the modeling work you were doing or does that modeling work come beforehand? Modeling work is beforehand. That was when I was in high school, like 16, 17, 18. And it's how oh, I got- Oh, that early? Yeah. And then I got to New York through a modeling agency and then did it for about, I don't know, six months maybe and um, quit and then went back to it a few times and went and lived in Paris for, I think, six months in my 20s. So I'd go back into it, but I never, every time I'd be like, Ugh, I don't like this. I don't, I don't feel good. Um, I, and I would- quit again and just go back can, to wait, wait can, can I ask what was uncomfortable about it I mean yeah, I have an idea but I yeah I was mostly like <laughs> paying attention to how you looked and how much you weighed and um also having a comfort in front of the camera which I did not have like I, I wasn't a good model when I actually had to stand in front of the camera I would just be petrified um especially when I was younger I just it just felt like what am I doing I don't know what I'm doing and I'm sure I was so stiff and weird and you know, some girls just had the the confidence and like an innate sense of how to move. And and I did not at that time in my life. 
was there a moment maybe in Sheila Gray's class or 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 at an audition where you were like, oh, this this could actually be a career. This is something I could do for a living. I didn't know that I would I would be able to do it for a living, but I did um my very first time in Sheila's class, um, it was a basic exercise class and she, everybody was doing something different in the room. It's like your private work. And, um, she put a chair down in front of me and I sat in another chair and she said, okay, put someone you love in this chair. And then basically you're creating that person. You're, you're bringing them into the room with you and like feeling their hand and smelling their hair and all these things. And I found it very moving and, um, powerful. And so I didn't know that I would be able to earn money at it, but it felt like, oh, this is, this is a way that I'd like to try to do this. It was a very real moment. There's a lot of, there's some anthropology in that, I think, to a certain extent, isn't there? Yeah. I think you might be right, actually. I never put that together. There's a lot of like, lots of interesting work in in the nineties in New York, a lot of stage stuff. How much of a of a break was Law and Order? Would you consider that like that is the that is the opening when you when you got on Criminal Intent was like like this is I have arrived. No, I had a I had like a few of those before Great. that, and then that didn't even feel. But then at the end of the day, it feels like none of those are your arrival. Like I feel like there are very different arrivals as you go. Oh, in you, hindsight, you know I mean? yeah. oh, in hindsight, everything's bef- different before at the that, moment. No, but before that, I did a movie called The Love Letter that was for DreamWorks, mm-hmm. um, shot in Rockport, Massachusetts. And so that felt, that felt big. And it was after that, that I could quit waitressing. So I was, was 28. An amazing cast, Love Letter, isn't it? It was Kate Capshaw and Tom Everett Scott and Ellen right. DeGeneres and Tom Selleck. It was a very, yes, it was a very of the, of the moment uh, yes. sure, cast. Sure, sure. And sure. and it shot in Rockport outside of Boston. So I, Perfect. you know, it felt very, yes, it felt, I was like delighted. I had also done a Stephen King miniseries before that, but so I was in Toronto for like two and a half months and that felt like a big deal that they wanted to like put me up in a hotel for two and a half months. And I think I might've even got like per diem, which was like free money. And I didn't in have Toronto, dependence. Where your money's, your money's going to go a little where in Toronto. <laughs> exactly. It's going to go some places in Toronto. Yeah, I think it was, I think we did call it per drink them then. But anyway, it was, uh, <laughs> it was, it was like living the dream. Though when I came back from, from storm of the century, I did go back to the restaurant work for like a year. And then, and then did the love letter, which felt like, and then I did Ally McBeal, which was before Law and Order Criminal Intent. So I've had a few of them and they just sort of pile on top of each other. It's like, oh, okay. It's not that let's, one. <laughs> let's, we'll, we'll, then we'll back up again. I'm, I'm looking at your your career um, in terms of the, the whole Boston of it. Um, Storm of the Century, I, I'm, it. It shot in Toronto, but I'm going to bet it took place in New England. Yeah, I think it was Maine. Some yeah, not, you, non, you don't say. Non-named. Yeah. <laughs> um, Imagine. And, um, and um, I remember how excited you were when you booked Black Mass. So excited. Is like, I mean, I'm, Whitey Bulger technically is one of Boston's founding fathers. I don't know my history, <laughs> but I mean, there is a there is this bizarre sense of ownership that you you people have with Whitey Bulger. I know. I like, we have a crime scene too. Don't get us wrong. We had a ton of organized crime in Boston. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not just you, New York <laughs> or Chicago. 
Um, uh, so what, what is it about, do you kind of feel like, listen, guys, I'm going to be the resident New England authority here. Stand down for a moment when you're working on something like that. No, no. You the, should. You uh, should. Yeah, yeah. I, I actually, no, but I was relieved because I felt like before Black Mass, like Rockport, yes, I filmed the love letter in Rockport, but it didn't really make much of like the Boston connection and no one had accents. And so Black Mass felt like the first one where it felt like proper Boston accents, time period, like that felt exciting to me. But, and there was a dialect guy there who I was like, don't even think about trying to get me help. But, but he did because I lived in New York for so long. The sounds you make change depending on where you live, who you live with my husband English. Um, and so I remember there was like, um, I said got like for, for G O T. And he reminded me that it's like got, that it's more of a rounded. And I was like, thank you. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's G U O T in in New England loosely. Got. I'm, I'm overdoing yeah. it, but no, yeah, you that way you just nailed it. That's right. You had this massive cast in Black Mass with people from the South and people from LA and an Australian and a guy from Britain. Yeah, and uh, that dialect coach had his hands full. He had his hands full, and I have to say, I thought they did really well. Oh, I, yeah. I thought sort of across the board. That was such a good cast. I mean. Bill Camp, Jesse Plemons, Joel Edgerton, obviously Johnny Depp. I mean, it just went, I just thought everybody came with their A game and I, I'm, I'm proud to be a part of that group of people making, telling that story. That was a good one. Speaking of amazing casts, um, did you, had you seen August Osage County? Uh, had you seen it performed before you, you booked the film? I did. We saw it in New York and I remember going and I knew it was a three hour play. And again, I was like, oh no, three hours. Oh my God. But it blew me away. It two, you know, two intermissions. And at the end, I didn't want to leave my seat. It was, did you get to see it in, in person? I, I saw that. I saw a second string. Right. Um, so I would have seen Estelle Parsons. Uh, as uh, as the matriarch, and I cannot remember the actor who played the role you did in the film, but I remember Frank Wood being in it and crushing it. Uh, Frank Wood took the part that Jeff Perry did originally. Did right. you see first the Steppenwolf cast? Yes. Okay. I did. But that, I feel like it's like Hamilton, where it's like, it's the piece. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's really get out of the way of the writing because it's there. And those actors, of course, all in both of those shows crush it. But when you have material like that, it just supports you to no, to no end. Well, it's so interesting too, because August Osage County is an outlier on a couple of reasons. It's rare that a, a quote unquote straight play stays on Broadway long enough to get replacements. Yeah, that's true. Start so there. that was kind of like, I was like, Joel, check you guys out here. This is like Chicago all of a sudden. Yeah. <laughs> we have, we have this, another actor plays this part because they, they just tend to do the, the demands of the marketplace. They're just, they're tougher sells. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, I remember being the same way, just riveted and loving it so much. But it's a really fucking heavy piece of work. And you're shooting. Did you shoot in um, in Oklahoma? We did. Yeah. Yep. Um, it looks it. It has that kind of thing you can't fake. You can yes. maybe go to you can maybe go to East Texas and fake it. But you it, there's an authenticity to just the landscape there that feels really. Was that um, was that a fun shoot or was it kind of an emotionally draining shoot or yes to both? That was that was everything shoot for me, because actually that sort of came at the end of like a, a not very a period of not feeling great. 
about what was going on in my career. Hmm. I can't, I think there was not a, not a lot going on in the year leading up to that. And then, um, I was offered a new Sam Shepard play, which I did. I, we were in LA at the time. We, I went back to do this new Sam Shepard play with it and an amazing theater director named Daniel Aachen that I had worked with before. So I did that. And then it was while I was in New York doing that. And of course, Sam was in the room every day, yeah. which was an, a remarkable experience. And then I knew, cause he talked about, he was going to go do August Osage County after I was like, I'm never going to get this role. I never even talked to him about my try like auditioning for it or anything. Cause I was like, I don't know. I just don't tell people things. <laughs> um, and, uh, and then went and did that. And so just for, to have that validation, to feel like someone invited me to that party, to that table was like, huge and having loved the play and being intimidated by Tracy Letts. Um, but there was a cast dinner when we first got there. And I remember I was with Benedict Cumberbatch, who plays my cousin, brother, boyfriend. Um, Spoiler alert. Yeah. <laughs> if you haven't seen it, you might not. It's been like 10 years. Yeah. You've had your chance. Go it's, ahead. it's not my fault. Um, we went to this like cast dinner and it was like, George Clooney and Meryl Streep and Julia Roberts and Ewan McGregor. Right, like, Clooney, Clooney produced it. Yes, it was so uh, trippy. Well, that's the question. I mean, you get to a certain point in your career where you've worked with some incredible people, but are you still, do you still find yourself getting kind of starstruck? It depends on the person, but um, I mean, Meryl Streep. Meryl Streep, yeah, that's what everyone says. Like, she's I'm the sorry. It, everyone she, says like- you know, I'm a total professional. Everyone's my colleague. And then Meryl walks in and I collapse. And yeah. I've heard that from so many people. Yeah. I was pretty starstruck by George Clooney also. Sure. Sure. <laughs> um, uh, uh, no, wait, is that, is that before Black Mass? Yes. It is before Black Mass. Yes. I thought so. Okay. So you've worked with Benedict sort of twice. twice. Yes. Um, both times he's out of his, uh, uh, he's in two different regions of, uh, of United States dialects. Um, you've gotten to see him do, uh, be pretty fucking versatile. Yeah. He's pretty great. We, we've talked about your, your British husband for a moment and let's continue just for a, a moment on, we're going to have him on the podcast <gasps> as well. That'll um, be fun. But. How did you guys meet? It's a, it's a, I know the story, but it's a lovely story. How did you guys meet? Uh, Jonathan Cake and I met shooting a pilot called Marriage for HBO um, that Stephen Bochco wrote. And I should say the great Stephen Bochco and the great Michael Apta directed um, about, gosh, like 18 years ago now. And it was about the whole thing was this couple in their bedroom. Jonathan just says the bedroom, but it's the bedroom, bathroom, and walk-in closet. I'm the pedant. <laughs> I like to get specific. Um, well, that's three locations you just that's mentioned. That's exactly right. And those, so those all need to be individually lit, as far as, He likes to make everyone think we're just like fucking the whole show, but we're actually also sometimes, you know, showering, and sometimes we're like putting on new clothes. We are often naked, so luckily it didn't get picked up. And but we sort of fell in love, and. Um, uh, yeah, he was living in England at the time I was here and we just started talking on the phone when people used to talk on landlines and, uh, got whacked with like a $3,000 phone bill. 
Remember big phone bills? Yeah, I do. <laughs> I do. Yeah. I remember getting a, wow. Yeah. That's the mark of the long distance relationship at that time yes. was you had a phone bill with a comma in it. Exactly. And then I was like, oh, okay. And then we just started finding each other in places. We Our first date was actually in like the South of France for his parents' 45th wedding anniversary. Um, because I was working that summer and he was working in London and it was the first time we were both not working. So he's like, you want to come? I'm like, yeah, sure. Because actually it felt like we hadn't, it's fine. We we're not getting married yet. So it was just like, it felt like a fun vacation anyway. Now we have two kids. <laughs> um, what, how is it? I, I met my wife in an improv class. I've talked to a few people who have met people working. How do you tell when you are transitioning from a talent crush to a real crush? Do you tell? I don't know. Do you just kind of stay out of the we way? we just kept going. I think we just, you know, kept going with it. Um, I think the more time you spend away from a set and find that you still really like each other and you still have lots of things to talk about um, is a good way to to figure that out. Yeah, that's what worked for us. Yeah. You've played a ton of, not a ton, but you've played some some real people, some people who who actually existed. You've been thinking of your work in I, Tanya. Um, do you go all in on on research or are you just like the script is the script? That's what's on the page. That's what I'm doing. Or are you the sort of person who like goes deep dive into like the interviews you can find online? If there's if there's material out there about the person, then I like to I like to read it, watch it, hear about it. But I also use what's on the page and my imagination because I feel like you can't actually you can't tell that person, you can't be that person. So it's, you take what you can. And also the people that I've played, I don't think there's ever been, I've never played someone who's had tons of stuff known about them or already had. So it's been easier for me. I, I don't know what it would be like if I, you know, played someone that was already, that already lived in people's minds. That would be harder. I'm sure. You're getting to do so much stuff. And I'm, I'm imagining that, you know, we're, we're at the point now where the scripts are, are coming to you. Like, will you please please do this, which is, which is wonderful. Do you have certain roles that you are, would like to play that you haven't gotten to yet? They can be like major theater you parts. Know, or- no, you know what I want to, uh, so I, I really, it's terrible. I should get more specific about what I wanted to want to do next. A lot Now's of it is, it is okay. Right in here right now. Well, but you know what? Something came, I, I want to do like a, a Western but I want to be on horseback. Like, I don't want to be the lady on the ground in her skirts. I want to, so a, like a big Western would be fun. I want to do, I want to go away from, you know, the stuff I've been doing, the stoic, you know, stern middle-aged ladies who haven't had an easy time of it. I, so it's sort of seeking out those things that challenge me in, in different ways. Be fun to do a comedy, be fun to do something more lighthearted. You are, um, the, for, I honestly, I think one of the first things I saw you in was an underseen, I've talked to you about this before. I'm a big fan of that movie, Seeing Other People. Oh yeah, yes. I like that. You're I think so there's a sweet. lot of incredibly funny, I'm not actually, I'm rather caustic. That's and true, you know that's this. true, I do, you're right. So I take I, it all back. I, so, if, so I'm obviously speaking from the heart here. That's a really funny, funny film. I agree. Where you are afforded the opportunity to be funny with this amazing cast. You got Andy Richter's in there, Brian Cranston's in there. Jay Moore. Jay Moore is in there. He's so funny in that movie. I know he's really good too. He's a really good actor. He's wonderful. He's a nuanced 
grounded about yeah and and but the jokes fly fast and steady I know. and i what was that experience like because you had not before that i mean i guess you'd done alan mcbeal which was light but you would be hard pressed to call it you know sort of comedy per right. se it was an hour-long dramedy i guess right but like what was it like getting to do stuff like that with that cast my god with with seeing other people yeah it was so fun it was so fun. It's so I love uh, Wally Waladarski and Maya Forbes. They're a married couple who wrote and directed that, and they have an amazing resume between them. Um, with the Larry Sanders Show and The Simpsons, and so they're just smart and funny and original thinkers. And so to show up every day, and Jay Moore was so funny. Um, I mean, just intrinsically funny and then wonderful to act with. And so it was a joy and I wouldn't mind a little more of that, you know, to like shy away maybe from the like dead kids and, and convict husbands, et cetera. (laughs) (laughs) And recovery. Like let's get, let's find some happiness and some joy and some like, I don't know, something funnier. I want this for you so badly. I really, because I know you can do it is the thing. So this isn't just, you know, someone who's like, I want to press myself. Like, no, this is, you You would serve a comedy really well. It's funny. Everyone I talk to though, is just feels like they're in one. I'm on the other side of the equation. I'm dying to do something with, you know, uh, uh, an ill kid. It doesn't have to be a dead <laughs> kid, but I'd like an ill kid. Yeah. Um, let me, let, let me, let this be my moment to, to, to ask the industry for that. Um, and yeah, cause I'm, and I'm perfectly happy, like coming in, landing my jokes, surprising the writers with their own material. That's fun. And I, I enjoy it, but I think everyone is constantly looking for the, the other person's lawn to a certain extent, mm-hmm. which is healthy. I think, mm-hmm. I think it's really healthy. I do too. Who were, when you were coming up or even nowadays, who were some, some, maybe not the, the big stars, obviously we've talked about Meryl, who were the sort of like supporting players and character actors you loved when you were, you were coming up? Were there people you, you saw found in the corner of a screen who were you like, Oh wow, I want to, I want to do that. The first person who just jumps to my mind, who I don't know if he was ever like in the corner of the screen, but who always has done like consistent. I'm thinking about two men right now is um, Sam Rockwell, because I mean, obviously he's blown up, but I just feel like he's made such interesting choices over his entire career. And Sam Rockwell had like 10 years where he was he he clearly was doing like a week on a movie. Yeah. Coming in, picking it up, leaving with it. And like, that was it. But you could tell like, oh, that guy wasn't there for the whole shoot. He's just crushing it every time he's on screen. Have you seen, um, have you seen uh, the Jesse James movie with the incredibly long title? Yes. Yes. Yeah. I went out for the the Casey Affleck role and I was like, what am I doing here? I never go out for this stuff. Um, Or no, excuse me. I went, no, it was the Sam Rockwell world. It was the Sam Rockwell world that I went out for. And um, as petty and bitter as I am, I still went to see the movie opening night because I was like, that script's great, man. And Rockwell was incredible. He's just like this ball of like modern neuroses in the 1800s. And he just commits in such an interesting way, regardless of the size of the role, which I admire. Yeah, no, there's no he's a real there are no small roles thing. And then on the flip side, you know, Galaxy Quest is a, is a favorite in this Brilliant. household. Same, same. You know who I loved as for girl women and I still do, who also you see a bit more of now is Merritt Weaver. Oh, yeah. She's always yeah. sort of doing beautiful work next to the lead. <laughs> yeah, um, she had a moment on and, you know, the, the show's become a little bit of punchline in TV circles, but I watched every waking episode of it was um, Studio 60. And she had a moment as 
Perry's assistant on Studio 60. And Studio 60, you know, couldn't quite under, it was a very heavy drama around a sketch comedy show. Couldn't quite figure out what it was doing. <laughs> I remember. But they gave her a scene that was devastating where she yeah. was talking about her mom's pill problem. And, and she was so just muted and yeah. focused yeah. in it. Always. Yeah, she's so she's, good. And she's also hilarious. Like on yeah. Nurse Jackie. So she's, I think she's somebody that I've always uh, admired and love to see whenever she's on screen. Yeah, no, she's a, she is a, a delight to watch. Um, were there, let, let's get back to, to Mare of Easttown for a moment. Um, was there a part of you that was like, this is going to be a commitment in Pennsylvania in not like the fun part of Pennsylvania in the winter with extremely heavy material, was there a, a moment of hesitation or were you just like, I got to do this part? No, there was a moment of hesitation for sure. Also though, you know, it's a funny thing. Like on one hand, I'm, I felt like I wish I was in it more to start off. This is not, okay. th I did not carry this on, but so, I should say this has happened a couple of times where I wish maybe I was more heavily, my character was more heavily in the story. But the flip side of that is that I have a family and I live in LA. Yeah. So when I have a job and I'm part of an ensemble and it's not like the lead, I'm not there every day, then I can go do the work for a week or two and then come home for two weeks. So the, that, so Mayor and the Outsider too afforded me the chance to go and work on um, good shows with great people, but also still be very much in my life, taking care of my kids, being there for my husband, like, you know, being home. So it's like, you know, both it's, it's, uh, you can't have everything. It's it. People rarely speak about the very practical concerns of location work. And I never get an offer anymore, which is like, yay. So I was like, how can this work? How can this work? What's Jonathan doing? Are we in school? Like it's never, you know, when you're in your twenties, it's just like purely the feeling around an offer. And now it's just like, okay, what does this mean? And if it ticks enough boxes and we can make it work, then we do. Okay. So what were the boxes that, that mayor ticked that made you go, okay, let's do this. Uh, story. I thought the scripts were amazing. Kate Winslet. Yeah. HBO. Mm -hmm. Cash money. <laughs> sure. Okay. Thank you for your um, candor. Yeah. Because <laughs> uh, you need to work to make money sometimes. Also. Yeah, sure. Um, sure. But I mean, if it's number four on that list, that's solid. That's a great decision. When it's number one, you inevitably are going to feel dirty. Yeah. Um, even, even when you're flying first class. You're yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. Ugh. No, it was low. That was low on it, but it's still on that list of, of boxes that we're taking or not. Sure. Um, you had, because it was one, uh, they shot it very kind of British style, like one director, one writer for the whole series, yes. didn't they? Yes. Did you shoot it as a movie or did you shoot it episode at a time? No, we shot the whole thing at, like as a film. Um, we were okay. shooting scenes. One big seven hour movie. Yeah. We were shooting yeah. scenes from episode seven in, in like one month in and, and same shooting scenes from scene from the first episode, like at the end of the film. So it was all a mishmash. There was no. Um, sadly, we couldn't pay attention to the, to the timeline. Okay. How, what, it's such a basic sort of elementary acting question, but is that hard to like, okay, this is, this is, I have not had any antecedent for the scene we're about to shoot. <laughs> you can't ramp up to this. <laughs> I just have to be here right now. And your, your stuff in the last couple of episodes is devastating work. It's really, 
I mean, you were making impossible choices that mere mortals are not going to have to face likely, you know, how do you ramp up for something like that? Um, I, I think it would be helpful to have, if you did shoot in any sort of chronological order to build to those, obviously, but you know, we didn't have that luxury. And so then you just have to use your imagination and understand the facts of where that person is and then just commit yourself 100%. And, you you know, as I said, imagination is a big part of it because luckily, fortunately, most of us won't have to deal with stakes that high, but it's like, if you don't commit to that being the truth, then it doesn't work. I mean, I know it's the most big, like it's, it's, it's called acting. My dear boy is the, is the answer there, but it's whenever I'm, uh, uh, they, they throw like the real heavy moment. And again, I don't have a ton of heavy moments, but whenever it's thrown at me, like on Monday and I'm like, okay, so all the ramp up, we're going to shoot on Friday because that's when we have the location. But right now I've got to, I've got to climax all that stuff. Okay. Let's, here we go. Let's pretend. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Let's make believe everybody. I think there's something to that, you know, it's called acting, but I think there's, I think that's not, not entirely fair either. Always. It's, it's not a, um, it's not always an easy job, especially when, when it's stuff that, yes, obviously we use our imagination, but massive spoilers herein for the end of Mare of Easttown, when you've got to basically testify to have your son convicted of murder and he's a fucking middle schooler, you know, that's a massive, I mean, how do you even like, there's so many things in our life where we can go, okay, well, I had a similar experience to that. I can just pull from that moment. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't, luckily I don't have that moment anywhere close to that moment. So then it's just, it's just, I don't know, committing and going for it. I've met both your kids and frankly, it's only a matter of time. Exactly. I, really, I, I know. The writing's on the both wall. Your kids. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what? It's going to be the girl. <laughs> I know. Poor thing. Um, <laughs> what, um, did you, when you're playing a parent, do you kind of go out of your way to 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 bond with the kid a little bit offset or do you try to like one hundred percent a little bit of one hundred percent? I think it's hugely yeah, important. So do I. I think it's hugely important. Right? You it's have easier to. for them. Yes. Yeah. And also, don't you find that like they just listen to you? If you have a relationship, then when you're in the scene, you're in the scene together. And if yeah. you don't, they're like what they're like blank behind the eyes, as as are most adults, by the way. Yeah, absolutely. We yeah. Try I always always like get in touch with them before we film. I find out their interests. I bring, bring presents. We hang out on set like, and then it's fun. And then it's an experience. I had this, uh, I had this little girl sitting on my lap once. I'm not going to name names, but she felt so comfortable. This, the cameras are rolling. Let's get her canceled. She's, Let's do no, it. No, 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 nothing like can- She was just like <laughs> farting on my lap. So we're Beautiful. filming a scene and it's just like on my jeans. And I'm like, oh my God, she feels comfortable. We're she here. feels comfortable. We're, you know we're what? definitely that, in the moment. That level of comfort is going to read on <laughs> That's camera. That's what I like to give all my 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 coworkers. They can fart on my now, lap. If you can just get Benedict Cumberbatch comfortable enough <laughs> to rip one off in your lap, then you will have oh, really God. turned a corner. And I mean, I think hope, hopefully the third film you guys do together, you will you will get there. We'll get there. I'm praying for it. Yeah, I think that's so important because you can't expect these kids to show up with, you know, 10 years of Meisner or something. Right. You know, you got to you got to get them, you know, kind of cozy for a moment. Right. And the joy of children is just their like openness, actually. And so if 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 you can get them to just keep that while the cameras are rolling, then that's half the job done. 
That's so that's such a, a wonderful <laughs> thing to to hear all of it. Um, uh, I get the feeling that maybe you haven't told that story too often. So I'm, I, I'm I've double, only told it to my kids, actually. To, I, I, I'm doubly yeah. flattered. I'm <laughs> doubly flattered. I really I got to tell you um, what um, they were horrified. But my kids were sort of delighted and horrified by it, as you can yeah, imagine. No, they, yeah. As am I, for that matter. But um, uh, um, but hopefully uh, whoever that 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 kid is. Um, She's a treat. She's got a sense of humor. About she does. Things. She um, won't. She won't hear this. No. Um, <laughs> uh, what um, was there a role that we, we we play this sort of alternate universe game on this podcast? Was there a role that got away from from Julianne Nicholson that we would know, um, or one that we wouldn't? I. So there was one that I had very very early on. That was like a big deal because I, you know, it was like very early on when I was still, I think in my twenties and, um, and it was, it was, and, but everything changed around it. So the story, cause also I don't like doing this cause I don't want like to want to, I hurt people's feelings or have people be mad. I don't know. So, but there was one that was early on called broke. Broke Down Palace that Claire Danes was starring in and this amazing director called Carl Franklin was going to direct. And that's the one where she gets caught yes, overseas yes, with the drug bust, right? Correct. Yeah. And so I just thought, oh my God, that would be amazing. Those auditions were the first time that like something came over me in the audition where it felt like the acting kicked in and I wasn't just in my head trying to like say the lines or trying to like, so that it felt very exciting, that process. And I loved that director and I did this. I didn't go to Greece with my boyfriend at the time because they had a screen test for me, which was just like, it was in the bag. It was just a formality. So I was like, of course. And then I go and then it's like, it's not yours. It's in fact, not your job. And so it was like early on and deeply crushing. And then Carl Franklin actually wound up not directing. Like a number of things happened where it got less painful, but for a while it felt like oh, that's hard. And now I just don't hold I just don't get attached to anything until it's mine. Well, I mean, that's the lesson that you take from yeah. those those early heartbreaks, yeah. I think, is that you hold on to these things very loosely and you you really try to leave it in the room. But it sounds like you got a fair amount of positivity out of it. In the long run, it was fine. But I also thought like going to tell that story when I was like in my 20s, like going to Asia or whatever, it just like everything about it felt like, yes, yes, yes. Also, I thought I would do it. I'd be a big star. The rest would be history. You know, there was like a lot riding on it. So it was just like all these and not going to Greece, and like breaking my boyfriend's heart and all this. It was just like, oh, God, it felt like, oh, I see. (laughs) This is what this is. Um, what are you, um, so you're, you're in the middle of this, this Emmy campaign. What is, uh, what is next? So, uh, something that I'm excited about is that I optioned the rights to this book called Separation Anxiety by a wonderful writer named Laura Zygman. Yeah. And, um, so now I have to, and, uh, Mark Roybal and this company Whip that produced Mare, um, got the options for me. We're going to do it together. And now it's. Now that um, summer is over, my six week traveling with my family is done, I can sort of commit myself to that because I loved the book and there is a lot of humor in it and um, just a beautiful, relatable, hilarious story. So I'm looking forward to helping to get that up and running. Are you going to help write it? I'm not going to help write it. I'm going to help find a writer. to get it written and um, see who the creatives will be, you know, writer or director. Will it be one person? Will it be that do both? Or will I have a writer and a director and, um, and, and I'll be the lead and I'm exec producing. So I'm very excited about it. And, 
that's that's what's next. Tell me about this movie you shot during the darkest days of the pandemic oh, in your home. God. Why don't you talk to Jonathan about that? <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> no, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. It was very it was an amazing experience. To, and to have this little snapshot of our family in that moment is like a gift. I'll always be happy to have, but it was really hard. So you shot it. We shot it in our, in our living room where you've been mm -hmm. with just me, Jonathan, Iggy and Phoebe. And we were the first family within this group and it was so fun. And Maven Pictures gave us this huge opportunity by sending us these crates and encouraging us to do it and supporting us the whole way. But just as a family, I, it, we struggled because uh, we don't know how to make movies and we did right. everything. And then every other family that joined, they had like their neighbor held the boom or this one was actually, you know, I think Julian or <laughs> Bart whatever his name is, did one too. It's like, that's your director. Okay. It just felt like, <laughs> man, we just felt so, we felt like such guinea pigs and so underprepared. And so, um, it was just a real challenge. And as I said, it's also like, it's fun now to have this thing and we feel very proud of it. And the kids were total champs, but it was not, not a, not a hugely joyful experience. <laughs> How do you direct your children? Oh my God, it's a nightmare. Every time the slate went off, they're giggling. And then we're, and then, and then Jonathan's mad and then he's shouting at them. And then we're like, then they're giggling even more like church giggles. And then it's like our stomachs are growling because we haven't fed anybody in like six hours. It was just a disaster. Yeah. Those, those, those living room movies can have shitty crafty. Oof, no, yeah. no crafty. We literally, yeah. can we eat something? It's like, yeah, it's been, <laughs> I guess, no, you I can't. guess the we're sun is light. going down. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah. So I don't know. I feel very ungracious talking about it, actually, but it's um, I, I'm not over it. <laughs> I cannot wait to see I, it now. Oh, I mean, I, I'm I'm proud of it. I'm proud of it. It's like a beautiful little moment. And Jonathan wrote a beautiful, a beautiful little story. And I just I just wanted to. To make the film be as good as what he started with, actually. He's such, mm. he's like one of the best writers I've ever read. You know him and his way with words, the way he puts words yeah. together. He's such a, such a interesting and enjoyable mind. Um, so, yep. <laughs> Julia Nicholson, thank you so much for doing this podcast. Oh, thank you, John. Best of luck to you. Thanks. And that is an episode wrap on Julianne Nicholson. You can follow her at Julianne Nicholson Official over on Instagram. We've been getting some really, really lovely feedback about the podcast thus far. Let's keep it going. Please subscribe, rate and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And make sure to follow us at Household Faces on Twitter and on Instagram. Forever. Dog. Household Faces is a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by John Ross Bowie, Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. Produced by Ben Blacker. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcast.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook.